listen to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises to manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Brady and the wife. Hey, guys. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Certainly are happy to be back on the air with you today like to talk to you about a couple of subjects that we have cooking. Um, we're going to be hearing in the upcoming weeks from our friends at the Institute of Supply Management. Today we have an interview with Bill Michaels, who is with the Institute of Supply Management. So you will be hearing a, a bit from him. And we also have an interview with the folks from Orr Safety. So that will be some great information for all of us on uh, you know, just things to keep the, the everyone of the safe who's working on a shop floor or anywhere in a manufacturing facility uh, critically important. I know a lot of companies pride themselves in the number of days since their last uh, their last incident. So, uh, you know, Bill Michaels is president of ISM Services. He'll be discussing how ISM provides training and development support for supply chain purchasing to companies in and outside of the manufacturing industry. And and Bill. Truesdale from Orr Safety will discuss how his company helps manufacturing entities with their OSHA-regulated safety issues by supplying personal protective equipment. Another thing that you ought to be aware of is the, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago with both um, uh, Tony Evans, who is the chair of the ISM's committee who puts out the non-manufacturing uh, index report and Brad Holcomb, who puts out the Manufacturing uh, Purchasing Manager's Index Report. And the non-manufacturing index report uh, bumped up 1.1% uh, from its uh, April number. So that was the main number. It's now at 56.3. I would encourage you to go to www.ism.ws to take a look at that report. Great information. You can really drill down. That report is important for manufacturers because it really dovetails into a lot of either where um, goods are coming from or your finished goods are going to. So I would encourage you to take a look at that report. Now, a, a heads up, and I don't know what the current status is on this in the last hour, if you will, but... The West Coast ports, uh, it looks like the Longshoremen's Union uh, is looking at whether or not they're going to go on strike if they can't finalize a contract. And their contract runs out June 30, so we're just six days away. I know that conversations are still going on trying to resolve some contentious issues, you know, including benefits and job security. Uh, so, you know, a smooth resolution is not necessarily guaranteed, but both sides are still at the table trying to resolve it. Uh, here's a strategy, however, you should tuck in the back of your head at this point when we're only six days out, that if that strike hits, it's going to disrupt your supply chain if you're bringing in anything from overseas. So I think you've got to keep in mind that... Um, Maybe you hold back some goods from uh, your supply chain, and we take a look at air freighting them over. 
And I realize it's always a little more expensive, particularly if your goods are, are particularly heavy. You've got to move a lot of weight. But I think it's important to think about not allowing them to come by ship, but allowing them to come by air. And, and I realize some of that is already on a ship. So there, there may not be a lot that you can do about it now, but if you get into a protracted disruption because of a port strike, that could really hurt. Some of you are already well aware of this. You're already on top of it. Uh, certainly that's excellent. But those of you who are maybe hearing it for the first time, think about holding back some of your products and, and going into uh, an air freight mode so that you can keep your supply chain running at least minimally while uh, we get this all resolved. So those are the kind of the four topics today. Um, ISM is going to be sharing some information with us in the upcoming weeks about their 30 under 30 program which they announced at the ISM conference. It's going very well. They're doing that in, in cooperation with ThomasNet. ThomasNet is going to be sharing some information with us as well in the upcoming weeks, so we will have guests from both of those uh, entities joining us. We will also uh, have some guests from manufacturing itself. We want to pull in some uh, people who are actually there running the show, we have a couple of millennials that we will be talking to who you know, have taken over dad's business and they've stepped into a manufacturing operation, gotten into manufacturing when really that was not on their radar screen when they went to college. But now they're looking at it. A couple of them have gotten into it. They're running the companies. They're doing very well. And they found out really manufacturing can be very exciting. And we've been talking about, you know, the cool in manufacturing and attracting millennials to manufacturing because manufacturing isn't your father's or your grandfather's manufacturing anymore. It's not someone sitting with a air gun driving uh, lug nuts onto bolts, but it's managing the robotics that are driving nuts onto bolts and doing so much else and welding and all kinds of things. And so it's a lot of uh, robotics and reporting and uh, programming uh, and a lot of the, the new, cool, green stuff that's coming out to help the environment comes straight out of manufacturing. And that's out of kind of their R&D areas and um, some of their uh, development design areas. So. I encourage you to take a, a good look at, at the manufacturing as an opportunity for you uh, in the very near future. So let's, let's get into our, our first interview, which is with, uh, with Bill Michaels from ISM, with their services division, and, and uh, hear what Bill has to say about how ISM delivers services to their members across the country. Welcome back, everybody, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We have a special guest today. Uh, Bill Michaels is with uh, ISM Services, and I'm going to have my, my co-host, Lou Weiss, um, introduce Bill. Lou, how are you today? I'm great. Happy to be back in Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> yeah, and it's a great show. This is fun. Yeah, this is great. Uh, Bill is the uh, president of uh, ISM Services. Uh, you guys, you've been with them uh, a little while. Yes, 
Uh, tell us a little bit about what ISM Services is. That's kind of new for us. ISM Services is, is a new company. I uh, I ran a consulting company for 23 years, and it was acquired by ISM in 2011. And we really have uh, quite a, quite a few pro- uh, programs: diagnostic programs, learning programs, and uh, and uh, full full consulting programs with, with companies. Mainly dealing with uh, manufacturers. Manufacturers uh, as in supply chain and person, yes. I'm aware you also have offices in uh, Shanghai. We do. What is that all about? It's the same thing. Um, uh, A lot of our multinational clients are are really looking for training and development support in China, as well as some of the Chinese national companies that are trying to get into the supply chain space and understand how to improve their purchasing. I understand from uh, past conversations with some of the ISM people, uh, but I'd like you to give us some stats on the ISM locations uh, and the number of offices and so on globally. Well, ISM really has the office in in the U.S. and China, but they they have 149 affiliate organizations, which are volunteer affiliate organizations that, uh, that work with ISM. They also have their own format of the uh, report on business. Um, a lot of the data is collected to, uh, for the report on business through our affiliate, our affiliates, and some key companies. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, now, Bill, in in your role with ISM Services, what is it in the grand scheme of things that you hope to accomplish with uh, with ISM and ISM Services? Well, there's a couple things. I mean, companies companies come to ISM services when they really want to improve their purchasing or supply chain organizations uh, you know, globally. What we tend to do is we have a current state analysis. We can go in there. We can analyze uh, their organization, their processes, their systems, their people, and then and then develop a program that's going to get them to best practice. So through through changing change, a change management program and through development of the team and development of the people, we tend to bring them a, a lot of uh, cost and value improvement and efficiency. Uh, so that the diagnostics are very, very helpful. So we have diagnostics on the current state. We also have a competency assessment on the on the team so that we can look at the team, we can see where the competencies are, where the gaps are, and then we can drive a training and development program to bring those gaps away. Okay, and is there a particular size company that works well for you? Uh, our largest company is about twenty billion and our smallest is about thirty million. So okay. they a big range of companies. Yeah. Uh, when you say uh, training for uh, uh, cost saving and stuff, do you also help set up these programs, or is that through third parties? No, no. What we tend to do is we have a diagnostic, so we look at all of the job roles in the purchasing and supply chain space, and then what we we identify is you know uh, what are the competencies that you need in each job role, and then we have a web-based self-assessment that tells us all of, uh, that brings all that data back, and then we look at where are the gaps. So the gaps might be in, uh, in, in uh, cost and value improvement, could be in supplier relationship management, it could be in risk management, and then we build a training program customized for that company in that industry so that people get a lot out of the training program. So the first one I, uh, that we've done uh, uh, was a pharmaceutical company, and we had a uh, $400 million cost and value improvement on a billion dollars spent, so a 40% reduction in cost. But it's not all about cost, though. Sometimes it's about risk management. I had a, uh, a biotech company come to us and say, we really want to identify all the risk in the supply chain. And it was it was a really interesting company because it had a spend of $250 million and a profit of $7 billion. 
that that company um, really had a lot of profit at risk, but it was also a, chemo, uh, bio, a biotech company that had a cancer drug to prolong life. So they never want the supply chain or any of the suppliers in their manufacturing chain to shut down. So we had to build a predictive model and help them with, you know, diversifying the risk. In fact, it's interesting because today we're introducing a new product. We joined up with a company called Ethisphere, and Ethisphere has a survey for identifying the 100 most ethical companies in the world. And and what they do is they they survey for risk, uh, sustainability, and uh, ethics. So we modified that for purchasing the supply chain so that now we can offer some uh, some of our customers the ability to look down the supply chain, identify the risk, identify the ethics risk, and identify the sustainability risk, and build the program. I have a question for you. Uh, you started off uh, your section there with talking about companies that went from 20 million up. Yeah. Um, is there any uh, plans or programs in place for the small to medium-sized company, the under 20 million that can also benefit by some of these programs? Sure, we, we will do uh, specific training and development programs for um, the smaller companies, especially the smaller manufacturers, to help them really identify uh, a, a strategy. How am I going to manage the procurement over the short term, the medium term, the long term? So you want to help the buyers and the strategic sourcing managers build a program that looks at what am I going to do for the next one year, which is short term, two years, medium term, and I think in, in this environment, three years is long term. But we want to go in, we want to see a, a team that has looked at their categories, has identified all the suppliers in the global marketplace, has really got selection criteria, really understands what the cost and value opportunities are, what the risks are, what the technology is changing, and be able to articulate a plan. Even in a $20 million business, you have to have that. What if one of our listeners is interested in getting in touch with somebody at ISM? Who would they contact or either phone or URL? Or sure, they, they should go to ISM um, and look at our website. All of our products are on the website, and Karen Collins is uh, is our business development person, so she would help a company. Karen Collins? Karen Collins. Karen Collins, thank you. Now, Bill, uh, how, many, how many people are we talking about? When you go into an organization, I know there's a wide range, but... How many employees are you working with? It sounds like it could be a very large group of people. Our, our largest client, we're doing a lot of training and development with GE, so that's our largest client. So we tend to work with all the businesses globally, and uh, and we we really uh, build you know a, a couple key instructors that understand the industry. I think I think you can't build a training program for a company unless you understand or build a program for the industry. Nobody gets interested in widgets, and, and so they really want to know if they're buying steel, or if they're buying chemicals, or if they're they're driving the supply chain uh, for for an industry. It has the training and development you do has to relate to the people. Sure. Because if it doesn't, you're not going to get the benefits, and it's just going to be another program. The other thing I think if anybody's considering a training program that they should think about is how are they going to measure, and how are they going to embed the skills? Because so many companies hire a training program send people off for a week, and then they put the book on the shelf and forget it. So we like to see companies endorse a, a metric like having a project that people have to come through and use, 
and they have to actually use all the tools from the training and development program, and they have to turn in a project that delivers value. So we have one client that does that, and they can show on all these cost savings projects a 40 to 1 return on the training. And they can show that they've embedded the training in it's there to stick. So manufacturers that just are going to go ahead and have a training program, not think through the metrics or not have any return on investment, are really, they ought to save their money. This is much like uh, having an ISO program, quality program implemented. Everybody's got to be in. Everybody has to say what they're going to do and then show that you did it. That's cool. So that's the same kind of ideology. Except for the manufacturer, it comes back as a cost or, or value improvement sure. or even a process improvement down the supply chain with inventory or, or logistics or, or even you know, creating a very, very optimized supply chain. Right. Now, when those folks go through the program, Bill, do they end up with a, a CPM or a, a CPS on something of that nature? They, they, they come through with, with um, uh, it depends on, on what it is. Some, some companies have asked us to build procurement academies and, and uh, supply chain academies, and in those ca- academy programs, we can build in some of the content from the CPSM. But generally, a lot of these programs are focused on what the manufacturer needs, what, what, are, what, are, what are the key drivers, and then closing gaps that they may have. So we can do it both ways, and we have built both a purchasing and supply chain academy for some very, very large companies. And in your experience, having been through this for a number of years, give us some give us some of the risk horror stories you've encountered. Uh, it, it's incredible because you you always see risk as as, uh, uh, as something that gets a lot of attention when you when you. Um, have a disaster like we had in Japan or we had in Thailand and everybody gets concerned about risk and and then it tends to go away and off of the radar. I think the interesting thing is when I'm with a group of people and I ask them if they have a a risk management strategy, everybody will raise their hand. So I can go into a group that I'm speaking in front of of 300 people, everybody will raise their hand. And when you ask the next question, which is how many people go down to the second tier, Everybody drops their hand. So in reality, you can have as much risk in the second or third tier of a, of a supply chain as you can in the first. And, and I, I think the, the failure of most companies is mapping the, the entire supply chain to understand where the risks are. Yeah, I was just reading uh, an article very recently, and somebody said the, the key question for, for instance, a CEO to ask when somebody comes up with an idea is, okay, great idea, what happens next? Right. And that sounds very similar to what you're talking about. Right. And, and you know, so you look at, a, a, at these companies that source overseas and never visit, and then they have these disasters happen. I mean, when you're working and you're going overseas to offshore, you, it's as important to have a relationship with that supplier as it is domestically. You've got to make sure the factory exists and what, what does the factory look like, and you've got to meet the people, the principals behind the deal. you got to know that there's not, it's not being spun off to another company. And I think a a lot of people, particularly small manufacturers, tend to source from their desk through trading companies, so they don't know that they don't have child labor or some of the other things, and that kind of right. can screw up the uh, sure. reputation of a company. Sure. And, you know, I think it's very, very important if you're sourcing, you're sourcing overseas to build the relationships, go and make sure that you have the same kind of relationship you have with a domestic supplier. From an overview, uh, Bill, because uh, we're getting near the end of your uh, your available time. From an overview, and you're certainly a professional within the ISM world and uh, supply management. Where do you see manufacturing in this country going? The reshoring going? And it, it seems as though it's the hot button subject for the last six months or so. 
uh, at least into uh, day, day-to-day news uh, uh, markets? You know, that's a great question. And, and, and people ask me that question all the time. They're all excited about the reassuring that everybody's talking about. But you got to think about it, right? So the appliance industry, for instance, has you know, built billion-dollar factories, and they're bringing the appliances back. But the building lights out factories where, you know, the people that you need to run those factories are people that can do robotics and programming and manage the lights out factories. So you're not going to have the assembly factories that you had in the past. So when a, when a business comes back, it comes back very efficiently. The other thing that people have learned from the risk management side of Japan or wherever else is that you, you want to be close to the customer, and it, it really isn't bad to have duplicate factories. So the factories that we're seeing are smaller, closer to the customer, and, and probably redundancy capacity. But if you have a problem in any any part of the world and you have redundancy capacity, then you've reduced your risk. So I think my point on, on the, on the uh, reshoring is it's different jobs, and it's different uh, locations, and it's, uh, and it's really... Um, going to be a different workforce that you need. So the jobs of having lots of factories and lots of people building assemblies is not going to happen. It's all kind of been worked out, I guess, of, uh, of manufacturing in a lot of different manufacturing areas. And is this where we see the, uh, the, the thrust towards uh, the under 30 crowd? These, these are the folks that, you know, they, they don't read a newspaper, they don't read a book, they pick up their cell phone. I, I got to tell you, the, the, the one thing that's, that's really been amazing, and I was talking to a little before the show, I had a really good friend come by, uh, and he runs and manages a very small uh, independent corrugated company. But what he told me was that he's picked up all these big clients, and some of the major retailers and some of the major food companies, and they all want him to build a new plant. He's so worried because people are not gravitating into manufacturing. He doesn't know where he'll find the talent to run the new plant. He's even worried about where he's going to find the talent to run the plant he's got. So I spoke to Plastics Executives not too long ago. Plastics News had an uh, executive forum. And the biggest problem they have is their, their workforce is uh, 55 plus. The tool makers are 57. So we don't have any programs. When, when I grew up, it was, it was okay to go into the trades. It was okay to go into manufacturing. But people tend to be gravitated to, you know, colleges and, and, uh, or universities. And not, not many people are coming in. And that's a concern for me. We had an uh, article about two weeks ago uh, regarding Hudson County Community College, upstate New York. And they've been dealing with this issue about, you know, making manufacturing cool and sexy. So they set up a program and uh, they had these uh, kids who never earned over $20,000 in their early 20s. They put them through these special training programs, almost like trade school uh, training, and they went through the course uh, two, three, four years. They come out at the other end and they're getting jobs for forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000. The negative is that they don't want to live in Buffalo, New York. Yeah, that's true. So they get these jobs <laughs> and they move away. So it's been self-defeating. Upstate New York, for example, is still devoid greatly of manufacturing. And uh, so there's a double, double-edged sword here. 
how do you get them to pick up the training and get into manufacturing and then stay in an area that needs to manufacture? So that's, that's, exactly. that's the key. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think when these jobs come back, they're not the not the same jobs, and the people that, that we need really need to be in the places where the jobs right. are. Now, Bill, do you communicate with any? I know the uh, Michigan State University was at the show. I know that uh, University of Wisconsin Platteville. Do you communicate with any of the universities and what you're doing as well? Absolutely. I mean, uh, ISM has a joint venture with the um, Arizona State University, and if you come to our booth, you see the CAPS group, and it's it's really for it's CAPS research. And it's really for advanced protein study and, and supply chain study. So we have a great relationship with them, and we have a great relationship with the people at Michigan State and. Uh, all of the business schools. Yeah, we're going to need a name in a few weeks. <laughs> oh, sure. Well, Dr. Dr. Carter's over there, so he, he, he'll have a view on it, and they do benchmarking, so they, they can tell you a lot about manufacturing and spiking. Well, that's, Thank you much. that's terrific. Uh, we're kind of reaching uh, about 20 minutes after the hour here, so we're going to take a uh, quick commercial break, and then we'll be back uh, with our audience on Manufacturing Talk Radio. talk about your family business? You know, that thing you put your whole life's blood, sweat, and tears into? Well, what happens when you retire or try and pass that business on to your children? At Succession Strategies, we can help you find the answers. We'll guide you through the unsettling process of protecting your family legacy and successfully passing your business on to the next generation safely and securely, ensuring that it'll both survive and thrive for generations to come. So ask yourself just one question. Can I really afford to wait? Take the first step. Take our complimentary self-assessment at SuccessionStrategies.com or call us at 714-560-9022 to set up a free consultation at your convenience. That's succession-strategies.com. When you use the Premier Rewards Gold Card from American Express, the rewards points can keep on multiplying. Buy three with triple points on airfare. Buy two with double points on gas and groceries. And a single point for pretty much every other dollar you spend on the card. Then, start choosing from over a million rewards to redeem all those points. Apply today and the annual fee for the first year is on us. Call 1-800-AXP-GOLD or visit AXPGOLD.COM. The annual fee for the card is $175. See terms, conditions, and restrictions at AXPGOLD.COM. Welcome back, everybody, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're here with Bill uh, Michaels. Uh, now, Bill, explain to me, I, I see in your name tag, CPSM, CPM. Explain this to me, if you would, please. Oh, sure. Uh, the, the ISM, uh, for, for a number of years, its, its history was the... Uh, um, National Association of Purchasing Management, and uh, in the early days, they had a, uh, a certified purchasing manager uh, qualification. So you had to take four exams, have a number of experience, uh, you had uh, continuing education to manage that certification. And, uh, and then we change our certification to include the supply chain. So as supply chain becomes more important in, uh, in, in the field, um, we're expanding into the inventory side, the production side, logistics side, and the uh, planning side. And, and those are, are all in the new certification, which is the Certified uh, Professional Supply Manager. Okay. Now, I also know that, uh, kind of to, to wrap up here, that the, the focus audience for uh, manufacturing in the future is the uh, under-30 millennial generation. Bill, as we wrap up here, 
what message do you want to send them about manufacturing in the future and their future? Well, I, I want to send them the message that uh, manufacturing in the future is really exciting. It's great to build a product. I, I, I love manufacturing. I love being part of manufacturing. And then as we integrate suppliers in the supply chain, because I think that over time what we're going to see is competing supply chains. I think, you know, our supply chain will compete with someone else's supply chain. We're already seeing that in automotive where you have the, uh, the Japanese uh, supply chain, the U.S. domestic supply chain, the European supply chain. So I think we're going to have uh, individual competing supply chains and I think it's going to be exciting it's an exciting career because you know if you're in the supply chain side of a manufacturer you get to travel the world you get to think about integrating processes you get to think about uh, designing the supply chain that works and Apple's a great example of that and I, I think it's a great career for anybody under 30 to get into and I think it's one that's going to be uh, a rewarding career in terms of financially and and, uh, and in job satisfaction oh that's great uh, again we're with Bill Michaels here and we're going to wrap up our segment with him. Bill, thank you very much for being here. Your information was terrific for our listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Right, thank you. Thank you. And before we go any further, let's do a quick shout out to our sponsor for today's show, All Metals and Forge Group, an ISO 9001 and AS9100 registered company. They provide manufacturing and industrial companies with quick price and delivery quotes and clean quality forgings for all sorts of parts, from aircraft engines to gear blanks and downhole shafts, hubs or subs, you name it, they've probably figured out a way to do a forging for it. If you want to find out more about all the things they're capable of doing and all the different kinds of metals, simply visit their website, steelforge.com, or try sending them an RFQ for any open die forgings or seamless rolled rings, anywhere from 20 pounds to over 80,000 pounds. That's steelforge.com. And now back to Tim to set up our second interview here. Well, thanks, Paul. And I think the takeaway from Bill Michael's interview, at least one of them, is this. Who is supplying your supplier? He's very right. That, that's where it tends to break down. We look at our, we look at the person who has our product last, just before it gets to us. And as long as we think they're performing, it's okay. But we don't look behind them to see who's supplying them. So that's a place for you to look in the future. Now we're going to go to a, a quick interview with uh, our friends from Or Safety. And they're the folks who uh, go beyond OSHA compliance with products and services to help everyone return home each day without injury since 1948. Hi, you're listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio, and we have a guest here from a safety company. Lou, would you please introduce uh, Gil first? Sure. Uh, Gil Truesdale of War Safety Products, uh, located in uh, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Uh, Gil, uh, tell us a little bit what OR Safety does. Uh, OR Safety is a safety products distributor that distributes anything that OSHA regulates, whether it be eye, face, hand, head, any products. PPE is what we refer to it as personal protective equipment. If an employee at a facility is wearing equipment to protect the person uh, from the product or the product from the person, it would be something that would be worn on their uh, on their person. So, 
and you're located in South Carolina. Is your uh, sales activity on a regional basis or national basis? Um, yeah, our corporation is out of Louisville, Kentucky. I'm on the senior corporate account manager, so I am basically controlling North and South America. So I just happen to live in South Carolina. Now, when you say South America, where in South America? Santiago, Chile, uh, San Paulo, Brazil, even up into Central America, Uruguay, up into Mexico, and all the way up uh, into Canada from Vancouver, British Columbia, Calgary, all the way over to the uh, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. Now, in, these, in these areas, are these your facilities, or are you going through sales agent representative uh, situations. Uh, since our role is to call on the manufacturing world, uh, our customers would be people that would be manufacturing, people, uh, Michelin, uh, Boeing, people that are manufacturing products. We would be selling them safety equipment to make sure that they're uh, uh, safe in a work environment. So are you selling direct or are you going through uh, secondary? No, we are, we are sort of the secondary. We're buying from manufacturers that manufacture the earplugs and the hard hats. And we're selling to the end user. In this business of safety, nobody really goes direct. Everybody goes through distribution. It's not a direct, it's not a normal path. Understood. Gil, we've been hearing a a bit about companies moving into the Carolinas. Are you, since you're in the safety industry and those who become your customers, you're hearing the same thing about, for instance, aerospace moving into the Carolinas? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Boeing just moved into Charleston and brought about 8,500 jobs. And they are basically putting the 787 together and they're putting it on a Dreamliner. I don't know if you've heard of that, but they're putting it on the Dreamliner and they're flying it to Washington and have it assembled. Uh, the Carolinas are normally non-union. Uh, the Carolinas, from that corridor of Atlanta, Georgia, to basically Raleigh, North Carolina, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's the largest manufacturing job employment place in the entire country. It's about 190, maybe 200 miles, and it is just one after the other after the other. I mean, it's uh, an amazing part of the country as far as that goes. California is taking a hit on that. They are definitely taking a hit with their tax base and that kind of stuff. So it's uh, a tax base or a tax debt. Yeah, exactly. It's not good one way or the other, but it's extremely good for our, uh, our part of the world because a lot of the military bases, South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida, when they were closed back in the 80s, um, 60,000 people just in South Carolina lost jobs and they just don't replace those kind of government jobs. Now Boeing is definitely helping uh, uh, Alcoa and a lot of others. Well, the state has uh, given them uh, large tax credits and tax benefits and finance benefits to lure them into uh, their, uh, their areas. That's correct. I mean, they have really done a very good political job of trying to get, you know, get the Fortune 500 back into uh, sort of the working part of the world. So, done a good job. Gil, what uh, size companies does OSHA impact? You know, OSHA back in the early 2000s became self-funded. Not sure if you're aware of that or not, but if OSHA does not write a ticket, they do not have money in the bank. So, when they're being self-funded, you uh, 
15 years ago, you own a welding shop with your brother, uh, you're probably never going to see OSHA. I mean, obviously, he's not going to come in there with 25 people in your welding shop. He's going to go to Midwest Baco. He's going to go to Alco. He's going to go to Big Deep Pockets. Unfortunately, now, he's going to still go to them. But on the way to them, he's going to stop by you and your brother-in-law's welding shop, and he's going to come up with, uh, hold on, your welding stainless steel. There's no, you know, hexachromium chloride respirators on your people. What's going on? And that's a $275 a person per hour that they're there. We'd like to $35,300, if you would, please, sir. And your poor little company is doing a million dollars a year, and you're trying to keep, you know, the light bill paid. It's really for the small business owner, roofers, people like that. I mean, do you see your roofer that now? I guarantee you, you've seen with a full body on his phone and tied off. Uh, you didn't 10 years ago. You didn't even know what that was. I don't think they've been in uh, the Atlanta area recently. Yeah, they, they, uh, in, the, in the larger metropolitan areas, it, it is a little less focused on the small business owner, but you get 20, 30 miles, you get into coming Georgia, you get down south, you get into Macon, I'm telling you, they contractors uh, are the worst offenders usually, mm-hmm. uh, and they're the unfortunately the, the biggest targets. Wow, I didn't realize that. I, I, I always thought it was, you know, the, the big Fortune 500 that was uh, haunted by ocean, <laughs> not those little guys. And it, again, they are definitely haunted, but they have accessibility. If, if you wanted to make an extra $10,000 a month in your job and you could just go write tickets to people to get that money, that's the process. So. Wow. We were talking uh, before the show and you were talking about cradle-to-grave solutions for uh, your products. Can you give us some detail on that? Oh, years ago, we, uh, we we did quite a bit with the assessment phase. You come in, you, normally you get called in when there's issues. Those recordables are up, or God forbid somebody has, you know, a fatality has happened or a very bad accident. That's normally, unfortunately, when you get called. With that, we were always solving those problems with product. But now what we started to look at and say, you know, we really need to, before there's an accident, let's come in and get you sort of an OSHA plan put together in case OSHA comes in. As long as you have a plan, they're perfectly fine backing away from you knowing that you're working toward a resolution. So we come back with, let's look at assessment. What are the issues? Let's look at every single application that's being done in the manufacturing facility. And then let's look at evaluating that process, coming up with a product that's going to be A, most economical, and B, it's going to be the safest. So safety wins, purchasing wins, maintenance wins, you know, uh, the, the environmental people win. So we're starting with product, we're moving to training, we're going through the assessment phase, and at the end of the day, we're training the trainer. So we're, we're, say we're respirator fit testing. Instead of us coming in and doing the respirator fit testing or working with a manufacturer and have them do it, we're training the people at the manufacturing facility while we're doing it. They can do it as well and learn how to do it where when we don't happen to be there and they hire 20 new employees on Christmas Eve, they can get it done themselves, and it really shows some empowerment to OSHA that we're actually training their people. Gil, uh, is this strictly, is OSHA strictly uh, regulating and pursuing you know, manufacturing, or are they in non-manufacturing as well? For the most part, they're mostly focused on manufacturing. Uh, not, not saying that 
everything is not manufacturing focused, but I, it would have to be a very high percentage because manufacturing is where you have people, and people is what they're protecting. So it's not a machine. If the machine guard breaks, that has nothing to do with OSHA. But if the person holding the machine guard is not in the right cut-resistant gloves and gets his hand cut, that has something to do with OSHA. So, yeah, I would say manufacturing is really most of their focus. Okay. You made a comment about reducing OSHA recordables. Can you explain that? When uh, the scenario is you're, you're working in a facility, and let's just for hypothetical purposes, you're working in a uh, tire manufacturing facility, and something happens and you accidentally get your hand caught in a machine and you get uh, a finger damaged or cut or cut off or whatever, that is an OSHA recordable. They have recorded the fact that an accident has taken place. So the more accidents or recordables that take place, the next person in line, very much like your car insurance when you wreck your car, uh, seems like the, uh, the insurance agent finds out before you get to the hospital that that's happened, and your rates don't tend to go down, they tend to go up. They look at OSHA recordables, and they say, well, you've had, uh, you know, you've had six recordables this year. Um, you know, your, your insurance rates, unfortunately, are, are going to go up. You know, it's all an actuary table, no different than car insurance or anything else. So by looking at it, and putting the cradle-to-grave process in place, it makes OSHA very understanding and aware that we are working with our manufacturing facilities to make sure that before there's an accident, we're trying to cover all of the applications of personal protective equipment for their employees. Not to be cute, but if you do get a recordable, uh, do you also get a ticket from OSHA? You do not get a ticket from OSHA, unless, unfortunately, if it was a fatality, uh, absolutely. Uh, OSHA has the power um, to go into a large manufacturing facility, we'll pick Boeing, they could go into Boeing and within 24 hours they could shut that entire plant down with basically no information that they have to give to anybody and be under complete investigation, or they can shut down your brother-in-law's welding shop, either one. So they have the power to do whatever it is that they want to do. Not a good scenario. Not a good scenario. So the process is always have a plan. Always have a calendar saying you're going to evaluate every commodity of PPE. And when OSHA sees that, you're prepared. You're preparing it, and you're constantly evaluating it. So you're you're not necessarily going to get a ticket, but the person that's next to you in the next plant that doesn't have that, it's a path of least resistance. And the PPE stands for what, Gil? Personal Protective Equipment. Okay. So if it goes on your body... You're personally protecting yourself with equipment. Okay. And is there a website that you have that people can learn more about your company? It's um, it's www.orrsafety.com. Okay. Orrsafety.com. Great. How many products uh, do you have in your uh, portfolio? Well, there's... Last count, and this changes not daily, but it changes probably monthly. There was 658 manufacturers of safety equipment in the industry. Uh, we are set up with all 658 right now. Currently, just in safety equipment, 
was probably 20, 20 to $25 million worth of inventory sitting in the U.S. in our warehouses. But by items, 75 to 80,000 SKUs. Amazing. Yeah. Now, when you think, you know, gloves, there's five sizes, that's five SKUs. So it's not, you know, but... Nonetheless, it's five sizes, but it may be rubber gloves, leather gloves, plastic gloves, latex gloves. <laughs> well, it would be like if a, a leather driver's glove would come in small through 3X, that would be six SKUs. And then a rubber glove would come in eight sizes, that would, you know, so it, right, right. It, it's, just, it, it's just way too big. Still a lot of items. A lot. <laughs> a lot. And you have these in your warehouse, is that right? Yeah, we do currently. Um, our, our focus and attention is inventory. The more inventory we have, the more we can ship same day and the quicker that the customer can get the products without having to extend their capital purchasing budget to hold inventory for months at a time, they can have a better, what we call JIT, a just-in-time arrangement. We use 10 a week. Let's order 10 on Monday. We'll order 10 the next Monday. And they don't have to order 400 because they got a plan for two months. And th- that means you're selling the end, not the end user, because the end user is the employee, but the end user company direct, is that correct? Correct. We would be selling to basically Fortune 500. You look at the Fortune 500, every single one of those practically would be a manufacturing company. Okay. And did I understand that you also are selling direct into companies in Brazil and South America? Correct. We're doing uh, North South America. We actually have products that are global. We do have a couple of very specific products uh, that are global products. So we're selling, I think it was the 105 countries or something. But again, there's about 10 products specifically that would do for specifically oil and gas industry that are used globally. But most of the stuff is North South America. And each one of those products becomes, I'm sorry, each one of those orders becomes, a, if you will, a small export? That, that would be correct. And they normally, we would, when we export that type of stuff, because of, obviously, freight and because of, you know, fuel and timing, it tends to be container-type orders. It's not a two boxes of this. It's a, it's a 40-foot or a 20-foot flat container filled with $250,000 worth of goods, and then they get it, and then they might last them six months. So. Oh, okay. Well, that's great. Uh, we certainly appreciate you being here on our show with us. Is there anything else that either you learned at the show or you want to share with uh, with our listening audience before we wrap up here? I don't think so. I, I appreciate it very much as far as being asked to be on the show. Glad to always support you guys. Um, I've heard a lot about you and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, spreading the news a little bit more about you guys. Great. And if anyone wants to listen to these shows, they are on uh, mfgtalkradio.com. Uh, we will be putting them up over a period of time. Uh, from the ISM show here live in Las Vegas, uh, and they will be a podcast that you can download and listen to. And we appreciate the Gil you being on our show today. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thank you, Gil. Yes, sir. All right, let's go back to Tim for some final thoughts. Bill Truesdale from Or Safety. That's www.orrsafety.com. Two takeaways from Bill's interview. The first is even the small mom-and-pop machine shop has to comply with OSHA. <clears throat> so you run, you run a significant fine risk if you don't. The second is break out Excel and start listing and building your plan of you know, the products you use, what people need, a calendar for having it in place, and review your personal protective equipment 
so that everyone has got what they need or you're aware of what they don't have and it's in the works, should OSHA show up at your door, you're covered. That's critically important. A quick wrap-up on ISM on the non-manufacturing index. Uh, business activity is up to 62.1%, and new orders is 60.5%. So a lot of good stuff, although I know some of you aren't exactly feeling it yet. Uh, this is kind of a slow ramp-up out of the uh, Great Depression of 2008, and I think that's what everybody's feeling. Everyone is cautiously optimistic, so everyone is cautiously moving forward. Nonetheless, the economy is picking up, so things are improving. We'll talk more with people from the ISM here in the very near future. Lots of exciting things coming out of that. We're going to do some interviews with folks from our, our good old boys in Washington and see uh, where they're helping manufacturing. And we'll have some uh, fun maybe that with them while they're on the air, but we may have some comments about what we think they could be doing to help manufacturing. And, of course, we will be talking further with Thomas Nett in the very near future. They have some exciting programs and information coming out. We appreciate you listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio each and every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. For those of you who have tuned in, you probably found us at www.nfgtalkradio.com. You may find us on some of our, uh, in our guest sites as we... Uh, put our shows that they were our guests up on their site so we'll uh, kind of get a little further reach and, and we'd love to work with any of our guests to share that information with them and we look forward to our show next week and you listening in thank you very much for listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio today <laughs> And listen to the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises to manufacture here in America with your hosts, Tim Brady and Lou White. Brought to you by All Metals and Forgery. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.